turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. What you believe about Jesus Christ not only determines your eternal destiny, whether it's heaven or hell, but it also determines how you live today. What you believe about the Lord Jesus affects your daily life and conduct. As believers in Christ, We're supposed to know who Jesus is, that he is the sovereign son of God. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Lord. He is the Savior and all that that entails. And therefore, our confidence is in him. Our confidence is in him as we get victory over sin, as we have the enablements of God, as we face a crisis in our life. We understand that he's the sovereign one. He's in control, the enabling, the empowering to live above our circumstances. All of that is tied into what we believe about Jesus Christ. is he? Welcome to our verse-by-verse program as we continue in the series, The Incomparable Christ. If you were to ask 20 people, who is Jesus? You will get more than one answer, I think. For that matter, how would you answer that question? There is much that could be put into an answer to that question. However, the Apostle Paul gives us a very clarifying answer to the question, who is Jesus Christ? We will be learning about what Paul wrote to the Colossians in just a few moments as Pastor Steve will be teaching from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. If you are familiar with that passage, you probably already have an idea of what is coming. As followers of Jesus Christ, it is very important that we understand the answer to the question, Who is Jesus? Now, here is our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, to tell us how the Bible answers that question. I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We're studying Paul's letter to the Colossians, a little church at a place called Colossae, which is now modern-day Turkey. And we're looking at verses 15 through 18. We're making our way through this letter, being careful to study it in context, study it in its setting, and seeing how it applies to our lives. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. The current edition of Life magazine has an artist picture of the Lord Jesus on the cover. 
We don't know what he looks like, so this is an artist's thought. And a big picture of his face on the cover of Life magazine, and maybe you've seen it, and right across his face there are these words, who was he? I've been reading about what people, editors of Life magazine have to say and, and others, but here's their opening statement in response to that question. I quote this to you. The question was posed by Jesus himself. Who do you say that I am? St. Paul attempted an answer for him, all things to all men. He was right. By the way, it's totally out of context. It's silly. To some, Jesus is the Son of God, born to a virgin at this season nearly 2,000 years ago, the anointed, the Christ. To others, he's just a man who inspired through his teachings and exemplary life, several faiths now incorporated into Christianity. And to still others, he's a myth, a novelistic invention of Paul, and then the gospel writers who required a charismatic anchor for their new churches. He is, they say, an idea. Whether idea or man, Jesus is a model that encourages goodness, a mirror that reflects our hopes. We see Jesus as many people, dutiful, son, ascetic, sage, martyr, depending on our personal needs. Consider, if Jesus existed, he must have looked Semitic. But the masterpieces of European religious art did not portray him that way. The African knows a dark-skinned Jesus, the sweet, a blonde one. Americans picture the bearded Jesus of a billion prayer book covers. Look at the pieces of art on the facing page. We see, and they have this artwork that obviously you can't see, we see Jesus in our own image. It helps us to know him, to understand him. It may help us, too, to know what others think of him. To that end, life interviewed eminent thinkers, including scholars, historians, theologians, clergy, and an atheist. Their testimony makes one point clear. Whether he lived or not, died on the cross or not, ascended or not, Jesus is alive in our time. To believers and non-believers alike, Jesus matters. Now, all that this goes to prove and show is that the editors of Life magazine in the world, they don't have a clue as to who Jesus is. That's all that really goes to show. They have their very fallible and very prejudiced opinions. But as I read this, I thought they've got one thing really straight, one thing that they're absolutely correct about. And they close their statement by saying Jesus matters. And that's about the only thing they have correct. Jesus matters because what you believe about Jesus Christ not only determines your eternal destiny, whether it's heaven or hell, but it also determines how you live today. What you believe about the Lord Jesus affects your daily life and conduct. As believers in Christ, we're supposed to know who Jesus is, that he is the sovereign son of God. He is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Lord. He is the Savior and all that that entails, and therefore our confidence is in him. Our confidence is in him as we get victory over sin, as we have the enablements of God, as we face a crisis in our life, we understand that he's the sovereign one, he's in control, the enabling, the empowering to live above our circumstances, all of that is tied into what we believe about Jesus Christ. But sometimes even believers get a little shaky on who Christ is. Sometimes we need to be reminded, sometimes we need to be retaught, and I think that was really the case with the Colossians. In fact, I know it was. The Colossians were a little church that had been taught the truth about Jesus by a man named Epaphras. The Apostle Paul was not the founder of this church. He had never seen this church. Perhaps he had passed through the town of Colossae, but really was not directly involved in the formation of this church. 
But there was a man who he led apparently to the Lord named Epaphras who did become the founding pastor. And Epaphras was a good man, a godly man. He taught them the truth about Jesus Christ. But a little bit later in their history, some false teachers came to this church and they began to teach error. They began to fill the minds of these Colossians with things that weren't true. And you see glimpses of this throughout the letter. For example, chapter 2, verse 8. And it's very important that you understand the background because what Paul writes in verses 15 through 18, we're going to study today, won't make as much sense if you don't understand the background of this letter. He says in chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So there was a philosophy of thinking that pervaded their error. And at the heart of this philosophical error was the belief, watch this, that a holy God could not and would not, it was impossible, they said, for a holy God to create an unholy, evil world. And so they believed and taught that God spawned a chain of intermediate beings known as angels. And the further down you went on this chain, the worse they got. Eventually they became demons. I don't know where on the chain they became demons, but the further you got on this chain, the worse these beings became, these intermediate beings. And the last one on the ladder, the most evil one created this world. Now that was their philosophy. Now, the important thing for us is to know and to deal with this issue, where did Jesus fit on this chain? Where did Jesus fit on this chain in their thinking? Well, they said that he was one of the good intermediate spirits. In other words, they thought of Jesus as an angel. Jesus was only a good angel. And as such, they worshipped him along with the other angels. In fact, chapter 2, verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels. So they were worshiping angels. And it's very interesting to me today. I was just at the Christian bookstore yesterday. And there is a revived interest in angels. Have you seen that? I don't know what all these books are saying, but it's very interesting how we could get caught up in angels. And we certainly need to know the truth, what the Bible says about angels. But it's very interesting that we can go overboard with this. And these people were beginning to gravitate to the thought that Jesus was nothing more than a good angel. Now, the question you need to ask yourself, And I will ask it for you so you can think this through. Why do they worship angels in the first place? Why worship angels? Well, there's a twofold reason for this. Number one, it's because they believed that good angels could break through the barrier of evil demons who kept them separated from God. So in some way, which we're not sure exactly what they taught, they thought that the demons kept us from breaking through to God and the good angels could help us. And so they worshiped these good angels. That's the first reason. So they were into angel worship. Secondly, they believed that angels ruled heavenly bodies and influenced circumstances on earth, similar to what some people believe about astrology, though maybe the angels are removed. So they saw some connection between angels and circumstances and heavenly bodies and things that happened on earth. And so they were very much into the worship of angels. Now that's the background. So because they were off on their view of Christ, or at least these Colossians were gravitating to that view. The false teachers were off on it. At least they were doubting. At least they were questioning. It was affecting their spiritual walk. Because what you believe about Jesus affects the way you live. And I want you to see this in Colossians chapter 3, 
verses 5 through 11. This is all tied in. They have the normal struggles of just being a new believer. Every new believer has struggles. In fact, every old believer has struggles. But on top of that, they were having some serious problems not having victory in their Christian life. So in chapter 3, verse 5, he begins by saying, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. They were still into this stuff. And Paul said, Consider it dead. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So I think they were dabbling with them. They used to have that as a lifestyle, but they hadn't broken off completely. They were still struggling. He says in verse 8, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free men, but Christ is all and in all. So he's calling them to understand Jesus Christ and what he did for them at salvation. They put off the old man, they put on the new man. Now, basically what he's saying is you need to live like that and you need to understand who Jesus Christ is and believing that he's a second-rate angel is not going to help you in your life. And that really is the background. Without a correct view of Christ, they were just defeated in their spiritual lives. The same thing that would happen to us. Without an understanding of Jesus Christ, we're going to be defeated. They had lost confidence in him as the sovereign one of the universe, their creator, their God, the one who is all in all. So, having said that, beginning in chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, which we read a few minutes ago, Paul sets forth a series of truths about the person of Jesus Christ. After that, he will deal with the work of Christ. And this happens throughout this letter. He calls us to understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The introduction is over. We've been studying that for a few weeks now. The introductory comments are over. He's given them a greeting. He's told them who he is, who's writing the letter. He's told them that Timothy is there. He said, when I pray for you, I give thanks for you. He's told them what his prayer life is like for them. He's told them what God's will is for them and to get in the word of God. That's all over. That's finished. Now he's moving on. Now he begins to address a real specific problem, the truth about Christ. So in response to the heresy that Jesus was spawned by God as a good angel, Paul sets forth three truths about Jesus Christ. But I want you to know he does it for a specific reason, and this is where you can see how to apply this. He's not just telling them who Jesus is. He's telling them who Jesus is for a purpose, and the purpose is found in verse 18. The end of it says, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. That's the purpose of this. He's going to tell us three areas in which Jesus Christ is supreme or how he's related to certain areas and people and things that he is supreme. And the real bottom line as you study this is to ask yourself, is he first place in my life? Is he supreme in my life? Do I just maybe know this theology, but I've not allowed him to be supreme in my life? The supremacy of Christ is seen, first of all, in his relation to God. And that's what we're going to look at first. He is supreme, but his supremacy is seen in his relation to God. And as we go through this, 
You need to ask yourself such questions as this. Jesus, does he just have a place of prominence in my life or is he supreme? Is he preeminence in my life or is he just prominent? Is he simply important in my life or does he have first place in my life? Have I dethroned him in any way? Have I not exalted him in accordance with the exalted person that he really is? And that's what we're going to look at. He is supreme, first of all, in his relation to God. Let's begin by looking at verse 15. Verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, who is the image of the invisible God? We know that Paul is referring to Jesus because back in verses 12 through 14, he speaks about him. He speaks giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. He's speaking about the son. And then he says, we have forgiveness of sin. We have reconciliation, redemption in him. So this beloved son of the father, this one of the father, this one in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins is the image of the invisible God. That's what he's saying. Now, what does that phrase mean? I want you to think with me for a moment. God is invisible. Do you know that? Do you realize that? God does not have a body in the sense of the essence of God, the original form of God. God is invisible. Paul calls him the invisible God. A few passages of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. God is invisible. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 16, he says basically the same thing. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. You and I cannot see God. He is unseeable. In John chapter 4, Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, he said, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God does not have a body. God is spirit. What is spirit? Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, verse 39, a spirit has not flesh and bones. Spirit is invisible. Speaking of Moses, the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 11:27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. God is unseen. God is invisible. God in his essence is invisible. He cannot be seen by us. In Old Testament times, he often revealed himself through the Shekinah glory, the light. Then how can we know precisely what God is like? Precisely what he is like in character. How do we know how he reacts to certain situations? Obviously, the Bible reveals so much about him in Old Testament times, and nature reveals a lot about him. But how do we know precisely what he's like? Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the exact likeness of God. He's the visible representation and manifestation of the invisible God, which is simply another way to say that Jesus Christ is God. Paul is not teaching that Jesus Christ is like God. He is teaching that Jesus Christ is God. Jesus perfectly reveals God because Jesus is the perfect God. I hope you understand that. If you want to know what the invisible God is like, then you look at the character of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, which is what we celebrate Christmas time, God, who has always been spirit, became man. At least one of the persons of the triunity. God became man. But until that time, Even the Lord Jesus did not have a body. Now he does. But God in his essence is spirit. Jesus perfectly reveals what God is really like. What Paul is saying is Jesus Christ is not an angel. 
Jesus Christ is God over angels. And this is the same point that the writer to the Hebrews makes. In Hebrews 1.3, he says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The word exact representation means it was a word used for minted coins that bore the image of the king or governor. What he's saying is Jesus is the exact reproduction of the Father's nature. Look at John chapter 1. John's gospel is very helpful because it's written to convince us that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God. In John chapter 1, verse 18, John says, No man has seen God at any time. You've not seen God at any time. I've not seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. A word explained means he has exegeted him. He has come to earth and put him on display. He has explained him. Jesus Christ is God. Remember one of the disciples said in John chapter 14, Lord, show us the Father and it's sufficient. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at me. This raises an interesting question because in Genesis chapter 1, Verses 26 and 27, the Bible says that God made man in his image. In likeness, he made man. Now, if we're made in the image of God, how is Jesus different? I mean, if this verse is to prove the deity of Christ is the image of the invisible God, and yet we have been made in the likeness and image of God, then how could we use this verse to prove that we're different from Jesus, that he's different from us, that he's above us, that he's God? Well, let's think our way through this. When God made mankind, he made them to be like himself. This is where a lot of people get confused. You hear liberal theologians talk about that spark of divinity in all of us. Maybe you understand where they're coming from. But when God created man, he made him to be like himself in the sense that man had the ability to think and decide. He has moral discernment. He has a conscience. He has intellect. He has emotion. He has will. There are certain qualities to man. They had certain attributes, character qualities that God has given him, like God, their truth and love and justice and holiness. But when man fell in the garden, when man fell, that image was marred. It wasn't totally destroyed. Man is not like the animals. Sometimes he behaves like that. But man is different. It's marred. It's still there. He still has a conscience, but doesn't work properly. It's still there, but it doesn't function the right way. His intellect is there, but now it's distorted. He doesn't think clearly. He tries to be logical, but he's illogical as far as God is concerned. His emotions are there, but they're not right. They're out of tune. His will is there, but it's out of whack. It doesn't operate right. The image of God is marred in man. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. Jesus was not made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. That's the difference. That is to say he has always been and will always be deity. He is by virtue of who he is, the image of God, because he is God. We were only made in the image of God, and that image is marred anyway. So you understand that Jesus is not like God. He is God. Jesus is not some second-rate angel. Well, How does that affect us? Knowing that he's fully God, how does that affect us? Well, notice Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. We looked at this before, but I'm going to emphasize something else. Colossians 3, 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And he's speaking at salvation now. 
you laid it aside, and have put on the new self who is being watched, renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction, and so forth. Then look at Ephesians chapter 4, because it really is a commentary on this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What he is saying is this, that at the moment of salvation, whether you realize it or not, God's image was restored to us. God's image was restored to us, but we still need to work at allowing Him to manifest those character qualities by our obedience to His Word. As we were wrapping up today's teaching, Pastor Steve made something very clear. He reminded us that Jesus was not made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. That is to say, He always has been and always will be deity. He is, by virtue of who He is, the image of God, because He is God. We were only made in the image of God, and that image is marred by sin. As Paul reminded the Ephesians that at the moment of salvation, whether we realized it or not, God's image was restored to us. We have more to learn about today's wonderful plan for us in the next Verse by Verse with our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff. I would remind you, the Verse by Verse podcast is available at versebyverseradio.org. That is versebyverseradio.org. Thanks for listening.